In 1992, a 79-year-old widow sat in her grandson's passenger seat in the drive-thru of a McDonald's in Arizona. Once she received her ordered coffee, the grandson parked and the woman placed the coffee between her legs so she could put sugar and cream in it. The resulting spill of this coffee set off a national outrage and condemnation of both the woman and McDonald's. But why would a woman who spilled coffee on her legs get this much attention? Well, as it turns out, she sued McDonald's for the coffee being hot and received a $2.7 million settlement. Most of us probably remember this incident and repeated something along the lines of, she either did it to herself of, or of course the coffee is hot. And we may have even chuckled or shook our heads at the ridiculousness of the event. But like anything else, there's more to the story. Everyone knows coffee is brewed at a high temperature, but does anyone know how high the temperature actually is? Looking at a Keurig site, they recommend a temperature of brewing at 192 degrees. However, the temperature of the coffee when it reaches your cup could vary greatly. At the time of this incident, McDonald's brewed its coffee at 195 to 205 degrees, and their policy was to sell it at 180 to 190 degrees. However, this McDonald's may have brewed and served the coffee much hotter, so much so that the woman suffered second to third degree burns covering 16% of her body, sent her into shock, and forced her into multiple skin graft surgeries. One of her lawyers stated, Quote, the coffee in question was brewed at temperatures that would approximate the temperature in your car's radiator after you drive from your office to home. End quote. So the kicker? McDonald's had received over 700 complaints of their coffee brewed too hot the previous year. Because of this, McDonald's had to retrain employees and change its policy for brewing temperatures, including fixing broken brewing machines. Against McDonald's, this became a financial and public smear, but also a training issue. This training issue follows the server all the way up to the policy writers. Although there are many training variables at play, at the end of the day, the training was inadequate and there seems to be no way to gauge how well the servers were trained, or the managers, or the policy writers. Shouldn't they have known what could happen? Maybe they weren't trained well. Maybe the training was nothing more than a simple sheet of paper and the instructions for pushing buttons. And this is why it is so essential to verify that learning outcomes are met so that we know that our training was effective and relevant that we can assess that our students have recalled, digested, and applied the information that we need them to understand. This possibly could have prevented the incident. Thank you for tuning in to the Instructor's Kit Bag Podcast, a podcast for all educators, based out of Army Logistics University of Fort Lee, Virginia. I am your host, Nate Ball, and it is time to wrap up our coverage of the experiential learning model by adding in our fifth phase of ELM, the apply phase, and connect all the dots into why ELM may be the best way to teach and train your students. In the previous episodes discussing the experiential learning model, we discussed the concrete experience, publish and process, generalizing new information, and the develop phases. So let's talk about the last phase, apply. At a trade doc pamphlet 350-70-14, which discusses the apply phase, it says, quote, Although the apply step may resemble an assessment or a test, it is neither. It acts as a feedback tool for the instructor. It is the final check on learning to confirm the instructor adequately and successfully taught the lesson, a measure of the instructor's effectiveness." End quote. Now this is completely true. While the apply phase can have an element of some form of assessment, mostly a formative assessment, the apply phase is really about gauging the progress of the student. and. As a gauge of the progress, this can be done throughout the GNI phase as well. Now, what does that look like? If I were teaching any equipment's components and how they connect to each other, I could have cutouts with pictures of these components. As I am teaching about the various components, the students could have the correct picture out in front of them as I am discussing them. 
Using quick discussion and question points, I could have them manipulate the pictures in whatever order I needed them to be in, so that as I'm teaching the lesson, they can follow along easily. This keeps them involved, engaged, and I can immediately tell they are with me at the moment in time, because I can view what's in front of them. Now that's just something you can do during the GNI phase. For the end of the lesson, it is important that the apply phase captures as close to all of the students as possible. Teachers easily fall into the trap, and I am one of those as well, where we ask check on learning questions to several students at the end of the lesson. Those students give us the right answer, and so we move on. However, this doesn't mean the rest of the class knew the answers since I only asked a few of them. There are several ways to capture as many students as possible when engaging them in the apply phase. Here are some of my favorite examples. Training aids. If students have training aids or graphics they can manipulate in front of them, I can easily see everyone's answer in front of them and I can get immediate feedback with who may be confused. Not enough training aids to pass around? Then just pair them up and have two students do it together. Second example, boards. Breaking them up into groups of two or three and sending them to poster boards or whiteboards can give you immediate feedback to these questions. I have also bought sheets of whiteboards, had Home Depot cut them into small squares, and had a small whiteboard for every single student. They then raised their answers for me to see. Third example, exit tickets. Sometimes providing sample questions, math problems, grammar mistakes to fix, or false statements they have to correct to be true can be written on scraps of paper. Each student puts their name on them and hands it to you at the end of the class. This works well when time is an issue, and then you can go over them and review the following day as needed. All of these examples are simply ways to get immediate feedback on any confusion or issues moving forward. This also helps the instructor to make sure everyone is at a similar level of knowledge and skills. These methods can also help out those students who may not speak up or ask questions if they don't understand. So it's not necessarily an assessment per se, but it is a gauge on student learning. Okay, so that's the apply phase in a nutshell. Let's put all of the pieces together. I'm gonna give an example lesson plan that utilizes all five phases of the experiential learning model. This lesson plan is the first lesson students will actually receive during the test construction course we teach here at FSDO ALU. Now the learning outcomes of this lesson plan are to illustrate educational theories for test construction, and in doing so, they must explain the ADI process, classify domains of learning, and demonstrate understanding of Bloom's taxonomy. The concrete experience students will use for this lesson plan is a question writing activity. Students are instructed to write down three areas they feel they are subject matter experts in. These can be any area in their life and are not restricted to their professional career. Topics could be anywhere from Marvel Comics, cooking, knitting, cars, Star Wars, anything like that. So students will write one question for each of the three areas for a total of three questions. And the questions can be any format they feel works well for an exam, and they must provide answers for the question. At the end of the time limit, all students will present their three areas of expertise to the class, and thus introducing themselves to the class because this is, in fact, the first lesson of the entire course. So each student will present what they think is their best question with any answer choices applicable to the class for anyone else to answer it. In this way, we use the concrete experience by engaging prior experiences. Everyone has taken assessments, for example, and many people remember seeing bad examples of test questions. For our publish and process phase, we facilitate classroom discussion with questions that can help our students discuss their experiences with test questions and help to find value in creating effective question writing. Questions like, have you experienced terrible tests with equally terrible questions? What do you think made those questions terrible? And when you were writing your own questions, who did you write them for? 
Who was the audience? What level of difficulty would you say these questions are? And why is it important for a training developer to know who their audience is before they write questions for an assessment? After we facilitated that class discussion about what their questions entailed, we then go on to generalizing new information. During GNI, each student will follow along with the slides and instruction while completing note sections within their student packet. What this does is they are filling out their notes and creating a reference booklet while they're doing it. Then we go on to the develop phase. In the develop phase, we will again facilitate class discussion, this time asking questions like, after learning about Addy, Bloom's taxonomy and the domains of learning, how do you view the previous questions you just wrote at the start of the class? How could this information be useful to a training developer? Again, we are using the discussion to reflect on what was just learned and the value it has on the student. And then we go to our apply phase. The apply phase is we're going to have each student revisit the questions they created at the beginning of the class. Then they will apply the domain of learning that they just learned about and the Bloom's level of difficulty to each of their three questions. And we can do another follow-up question right after this with, by categorizing the types and level of questions, will this aid in setting up a constructive and effective test? So using all five phases in a lesson plan can set the course on a good trajectory. While it may not be beneficial to incorporate all five phases for every lesson plan out there, there should be elements of ELN throughout. Having students engaged, creating dynamic lessons, ensuring relevancy, and encouraging discussion leads to better education and training. For example, revisiting the McDonald's coffee incident. How effective was the policy making for brewing, for maintenance, for serving? Ensuring employees at all levels understood the importance of something so seemingly simple through encouraging discussion and questions during training and helping to establish value of what they are doing might have prevented this incident. Making a more robust, rigorous, and learner-centric education can accomplish those goals. But beyond McDonald's, using ELM in training and education could have prevented many mishaps. And not just for the military, but this applies to other companies as well. It also applies to trade schools and even public education. ELIM is such a remarkable and valuable asset for educators to utilize, not only to make sure students get it, but also to make lessons more learner-centric and more dynamic. And that wraps up our discussion for ELM, but by no means will we be leaving it alone in future episodes. ELM plays a vital role for us here at Army Logistics University, so you can be sure you'll hear more about it in various ways later. Thanks for listening to the Instructor's Kitback podcast for all educators, never stop teaching, and never stop learning.